0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Russell Banks, novelist, short story writer, essayist, and poet. Banks' novels Cloud Splitter and Continental Drift were Pulitzer Prize finalists. His novels The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction were adapted into feature films, He is the recipient of Guggenheim and National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His latest work is a short story collection called A Permanent Member of the Family. We began our interview talking about his youth and how he began to write. During high school, he was a visual artist. Then, when he was 18 years old, he dropped out of Colgate University to head to Cuba to join Fidel Castro. He didn't make it all the way, though.
1: When I was about 18 years old, uh, I ended up sort of isolated, marooned, really, in a way, in Miami, Florida. And I started out of loneliness and, and um, I suppose, boredom too. Uh, I just started reading for the first time in my life, really intently, without, you know, any particular object uh, or goal. Uh, it wasn't going to be on any exam. I didn't have to report to anybody about it. I, I was just reading in a kind of random fashion at the, you know, through the public library there in Miami. And basically what happened when I was 18, 19 years old was that I fell in love with literature and um, began trying to imitate what, uh, what was moving me so, so deeply. And gradually, over time, I sort of drifted away from painting, drawing, and so on, and found myself scribbled, scribbled, scribbling into the night. Before long, I was organizing my life around this activity. And I think, you know, there wasn't as though there was an aha moment where I said, I think I'll become a writer. It was more or less a sort of discovered that, in fact, that's what I had become without intending it or even desiring it because I I was turning my life upside down in a way so that I could continue to do it.
0: How do you think being in the world as a writer has informed or changed your life?
1: It's an interesting kind of, of uh, reciprocity between one's life and one's work. I mean, I, I write, I, I intend to write and hope to write in order to penetrate the mystery, in a sense, uh, to in order to, to understand something that I can't understand any other way except through submitting myself to the discipline and the rigors and the Traditions uh, that go with uh, go with literature. I can use an example. I can say something like a long historical novel that's based on the life of John Brown, the abolitionist, he of Harper's Ferry, called Cloud Splitter. And I wrote that for lots of reasons, but one of them was that I really wanted to try to understand the mind of what we call now terrorist. Uh, Brown was called a terrorist uh, in the. In the 1840s, late 1840s and early 1850s, in the Kansas War. So, I really wanted to know what was going on there. This was before 9/11. Uh, this was in the 1990s. And you know, after about six years of working on that novel, I think I got to, to some deeper understanding than I had before. Now, as a result of having done that, I then looked at what was uh, unfolding from 9/11, 2001 on. In the world, and I saw it rather differently than I might have otherwise and um and I saw it you know was i think um in a more nuanced and more complex uh and i hope um more um understanding uh way so writing the book changed my views on the world and also changed as a result probably how I engage the world so and I think that that's generally true even if it's something very personal and close to one's life. Um, another novel might I could use as an example like Affliction, uh, which is based on, on um, certain ways, and important ways, really, on my own experience as the child of an alcoholic and child of a violent man, and, and my attempts to try to understand and come to some deeper sympathy for my own father, really. That led me, in the writing of the book, um, not just to a deeper understanding of my own father and his father and his grandfather going back generations, but also a deeper understanding and, and probably careful uh, appreciation of myself and my relation to alcohol and violence, my brother's relation to alcohol and violence and and marriage and women and children and all these things. I mean, it, it certainly influenced how I engage the world. And then that, in turn, delivers up another further mystery um, that, uh, that another work of art, uh, another literary work, might uh, let me um, uh, come to understand or penetrate uh, anew.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Russell Banks, novelist, essayist, and short story writer. Well, you're talking about writing to see things anew, and I'm wondering if you know how your stories will end when you start them.
1: No, I don't, and and, um, and that's part of the fun of writing them, is not knowing how they're going to end. And often I don't know how they're going to end until I'm really there, I mean, right within a sentence or two or three of the ending. and I say, oh, yeah, right, now that's the ending. And then there's a, there is a place that it occurs in a story that um, I, I kind of love, and I, you sort of work, sometimes you have to work 20 pages to get there, sometimes you can get there in five, but it's where all the options seem to have narrowed down to just one or two, well, I shouldn't say just one or two, to two or three, <laughs> and and you don't know for sure which one. And that's a point where you kind of feel the smoke coming out of your ears. You know, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the story and therefore on the writer at that point. Is this going to go this way or is it going to go that way? Is she going to die or is she going to live? Is You know, what's going to happen at this very last minute, possible minute? And I love that moment in, in the writing of the story. You know, I can I can almost literally feel the smoke coming out of my ears and and. and you know, or the concentration on, on the details and on the arrangement of the, of the details um, that precede that moment um, is, is total and complete. And then you write the next couple of sentences, and then you look at it and say, You're right. Okay, that's the end. That's right. <laughs> and then you're free to let go of it. You're
0: listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Russell Banks, novelist, essayist, and short story writer you know the these stories and with some of your other writing they're they're placed in the adirondacks or they're placed in florida and just by their very nature the adirondacks is kind of a little bit more bleak less diverse less sort of a noisy sort of place whereas miami is bustling with culture and it's so urban and i'm just wondering about your mind frame what it's yeah. what it's like to go between different places, and to write about different places.
1: I'm six months in one place and six months in the other, and so it's a pretty much a bifurcated kind of life. One even could call it bipolar in a sense. Uh, we, you know, six months we're up here in the northern border, and then six months we're down in Miami, where at the uh, southern border. Uh, in fact, look out over the ocean, and I can see, you know, I can the way. Uh, Mr. Palin could see Russia. You know, I can look out and see Cuba. Yeah, the two ends of the uh, of the North of the United States, um, north and south. And I think that there's a lot in both places that, that engage me in a profound and lasting way. Uh, they both are parts of the world that resonate for me. You can't predict that. I mean, I've lived in lots of different places that I've never written about because somehow they just never resonated for me. And I think it's, it's because those places seem to have a kind of, I don't know, dreamlike intensity for me. Um, some places, when you enter them, everything seems meaningful as if in a dream. The smallest detail, the fall of the light, the sound of the wind, the smell of it, uh, all seems to have great impact. And it doesn't have much to do with, you know, some objective criteria. It's just that moment in your life when you enter it seemed to make it significant. And I entered South Florida at a very chaotic and important moment in my life when I was 18 years old. And in a way, I was a runaway. I was a dropout. I was a lost soul. I was a romantic. I was an adolescent. I was confused sexually. I was confused in all kinds of ways, but I was very intense. And, and, uh, and somehow, you know, I, I stepped out into the streets and that place had a magic then, and it still does to this day. You know, I'll get out of the car and I'll inhale the, you know, the Gulf Stream. I can smell the Gulf Stream, and I can hear the clatter of the palm trees, and it's all magical to me. Then in May, I'll drive north and come up here and uh, to, you know, and, and get out, and I'll hear the wind going through the pines right outside our house, and I can smell the, the, you know, the, the spruce and, and the cool air off the coming off the mountains, and you know, and that's magical to me too. Uh, I can't tell you why, um, but uh, but it is, and and so that's the common ground between the two places. Even though on the surface, yes, they do look like two different planets almost. Uh, for me, they're not. For me, they're they're um, they're both profoundly familiar and emotionally
0: laden. I heard you say once that I think you had been reading a review or something and it started off like another bummer from Banks and you were <laughs> you you were trying to maybe write the next book I'm I'm not sure to be less I don't know if it's bleak or dark what is your characterization of of the the tone and the the themes of what you write and are you at peace with that
1: Well I don't set out to you know write another bummer every time I sit down to work but that was yeah that was i think it was people magazine or one of those little magazines that, that uh, began another bummer from banks but um uh i do know that that to some people my books can seem uh depressing and but those are probably people who you know put little smiley faces at the end of their you know notes and, and so on and letters they just want to keep smiling and and believe that uh, anything that uh that doesn't encourage that um, is uh, somehow um Depressing. I don't happen to feel that way myself, but I understand there are many people who do, so I don't worry about it particularly. Um, I just try to write about the world um, that is that reflects in a way that reflects how I see the world. And um, there's a remark that Thomas Pynchon makes in the um, in a brief preface. To his one book of short stories, it's called the book of stories. It's called Slow Learner, and he says, um, he says, "I think fiction is serious when death is present in it," implying that when it's not serious, if death isn't present. In it. And I, you know, and I agree. If if de- death is not present, not you don't have to have someone die there. But if death is not present, as you know, as a kind of shadow that lies across whatever is happening in the world of fiction, in that fictional world, then it's not really serious. It doesn't reflect the world you live in. It's escapism instead. The world I live in, uh, death is constantly present. It's no, you can't escape it. So it has to be there. It's also a violent world that I live in. It's also a racist world, a misogynist world, a homophobic world, a world, you know, where the rich... uh, control to an extraordinary degree the lives of the poor. These are all the realities that surround us, and if I left them out, I would just be um, playing a kind of escapist game with myself and and, and for my readers. So I I can't do that. And if that turns out to look like it's another bummer uh, from banks, well, uh, I guess it is.
0: In one of your stories in um, Permanent Member of the Family, you had a character named Russell, and I'm wondering if you ever did that before and if that was a hard decision. I mean, the, the name is given, I think, only once.
1: I actually have done it, yeah. Um, uh, in The first time I think I actually did it quite deliberately and consciously was in, in the uh, Rule of the Bone, the novel in which uh, the character, the main character, um, Bone, or his, name, his real name is Chappie, but he ends up calling himself Bone. Uh, has a best pal um who hangs out with him it's sort of like Huckleberry Finn's Tom Sawyer uh hanging out with him. Um and his name is Russell or Rust. And, and he's a version of myself. I knew that when I was doing it consciously. I was saying, you know, there's a side of me that was that kind of know it all kid who was a bit of a con artist and um and acted like he knew more than he actually did know. And um and Got himself and other people into trouble every now and then because of that, and it was a side of myself that, when I was young, I was kind of embarrassed by and ashamed of. As I grew older, I began to find it amusing and interesting aspect of myself, and so I did consciously drop that aspect of my personality into this kid and um, and gave him my name. Just in a way, it was like exorcising him from me, that that kid, and um, saying goodbye to him. In a way, and then um, and then you're right. There is a story in here. Um, it's called Searching for Veronica, in which a character who is the listener uh, uh, to the the narrator. She does almost all the talking. He just does one or two, makes one or two sort of uh, leading questions uh, that get her to talk some more and continue to tell her story. Um, and his name does come at the very end, where she asks his name or he tells her his name. And, Says it's Russell, and um, and I did that too. I'm not exactly sure why, looking back at it now, but I I think I was trying, in in a way, to um, embrace the reader in a way I normally wouldn't—a really close identification with the reader, the listener of some It's that story comes as close to anything in the book to being a kind of metafictional story because it's about its own. It's about storytelling. About a very particular kind of storytelling—the kind of storytelling that an addict does. Um, the the kind of of mingling of fantasy and desire and uh, actuality that occurs when a when an addict starts telling you her or his story, and you believe it, you go with it, and then gradually, slowly, you begin to sort of suspect it's not quite as true as. you to believe it is. And so you start resisting and fighting back against the addict story. Any of us who have ever known an addict or an alcoholic or been, you know, seduced by that kind of a narrative uh, would recognize that story and that format with that that's happening in that particular story in the book. And I think I, I just sort of introduced myself, um, my own name, without making myself a character in the story particularly, um, just as a as a way of challenging the reality of the person's narrative. And I don't know if it works or doesn't work or if it's just distracting, but if I gave him the narrator, I mean the the character, the the auditor is what he really is, uh, a different name, say Robert or Roger, um, I don't think it would have the same kind of startling effect that it has because I gave him my own name. And anyone who reads the story knows it, recognizes it. The character is basically obviously an adult male, um, someone who is traveling at an airport, and he's listening to a person telling a story, and so it isn't hard to, you know, translate that into the the author of the story.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Russell Banks, novelist, essayist, poet, and short story writer. His newest collection of stories is called A Permanent Member of the Family. Can you read a passage from an author that spoke to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that question when you said it to me, and um, it interested me because there are you know thousands of Passages and paragraphs and writers, hundreds of writers, I could cite very quickly and easily. But then I was thinking also about early, early on, when um, and, and when I was 18 or so, and, and I first read um, On the Road, Kerouac's On the Road. So I read it, you know, right away when it had just been published, and um, there wasn't any context for it really, uh, other than my own personal context. It wasn't a cultural context yet that I was aware of certainly. But I remember reading it, and I remember being Profoundly affected by it for various ways. One is, I could—he was one of the very first writers whose life and relation to writing I could identify with. He was a working-class boy from Lowell, Massachusetts, um, who was a kind of a jock um, and self-invented as a writer and had the audacity to believe that he could uh, make uh, literary fiction out of ordinary life and uh, that it was going to be as significant as Proust and. You had that, that uh, it wasn't really, it sometimes took the form of grandiosity, but it wasn't. It was just a kind of powerful imagination, and it was enough for me to say, gee, maybe if he can do it, maybe I can too. And when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and read it the first time, there were aspects of it that really did influence me. And and there's one passage I want to read, and it's a famous passage. It's the last paragraph in the novel. But what it does, um, with the exception of one image, which really drives me crazy in it, Um, it does is that it's a vision of America that um, contextualizes the narrator himself, Sal Paradise, and also Dean Moriarty, his pal, partner, you know, his brother in a sense. It contextualizes their small life in the life, in a way, of the continent and, and, and history. And it was the first time I think I... Was aware of that possibility that a story could do that, a novel could do that. So I'll tell you in advance, though, so I'm going to leave out one image which drives me crazy because I just think it's so corny. And if I, every time I read it, I, I cringe over that one image. It's that line that says, "Don't you know that God is Pooh Bear?" I'm going to, I'm going to skip it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> without it, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful paragraph without it. Okay. Here's how it reads. So in America, when the sun goes down and I sit on the old broken-down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the West Coast and all that road going, all the people dreaming in the immensity of it and in Iowa, I know by now the children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry and tonight the stars will be out, the evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkly dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in, and nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. I think of Dean Moriarty. I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. I think of Dean Moriarty.
0: Can you read a passage from something you wrote? It could be something that you thought was hard or something you succeeded at or something that changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah, I can. Uh, I, I anticipated that question and took taking uh, one of the stories in the book. I thought that would be interesting if I could look at one and say, okay, now where did I stumble and is there a way you could relate it to the Kerouac piece? And I think I can. There's a story in there called The Outer Banks. Not Russell Banks, but I wasn't using my name in that case. I was talking about the Outer Banks of North Carolina, where this couple in the RV, this older couple who have um, gone out uh, to see America and die, as it were, end up, you know, out there at the Outer Banks, and their dog has died, and and uh, and they buried the dog, and his, and it ended um, one way, and I sat on it for weeks. In fact, I published it first with one ending. I think it was in Esquire magazine and then came back and looked at it again and looked at it again there's something something's not quite there yet and I'll, I'll read to you just the last couple of paragraphs it's just bits of dialogue but it's a very different america than the one that um than kerouac has been describing because he's describing an america that was in 1948 when those events happened and you know when he was publishing the book it was in 1957 So here we are, you know, more than half a century later. It's a different America. Anyhow, This is the two couple, and they're in their RV, and they've just decided now they've got to leave. He says, "Um, they've just done this business with the dog, buried the dog, and he says, that's the end of it. I don't want to hear any more about it, okay? He turned the ignition key and started the motor. The windshield wipers swept back and forth like wands. Okay, she said. He backed the RV around and headed toward the road. You hungry? He asked her. She spoke slowly, as if to herself. There's supposed to be a good seafood place a few miles south of here. It's toward Kitty Hawk. So that's good. He put the RV into gear and pulled out of the lot onto the road south. Fine, he said. Too bad we have to see Kitty Hawk in the rain, though. I was looking forward to seeing it. I mean, the Wright brothers and all I know you were she said the cumbersome vehicle splashed along the straight two lane highway, and no cars passed. Everyone else seemed to be inside today staying home now that's how the story ended first when i you know when I first published it in the magazine. It ended right there with a couple in the car in the in the r v headed down the highway headed south toward. Kitty Hawk in the rain, and and he was looking forward to it. Now and and I just kept saying there's something missing. It doesn't open out into a larger vision. And um, and finally, I just I added about three more lines. And sometimes it's those last three lines that that you know, that's where the smoke comes out of your ears that I was talking earlier, talking about earlier. Okay, I'll just go back. a... a a couple of sentences there, the cumbersome vehicle splashed along the straight two-lane highway and no cars passed. Everyone else seemed to be inside today, staying home. Ed said, we could keep going, you know, head for Cape Canaveral, check out the space center and all. She said, they shut the space program down, I thought. I guess maybe they did. And the story ends there now. So the last three... That last little exchange between the two of them takes them out of this little world into an America where they're shutting everything down, and there is nothing really left. It's a different world than Kerouac's kind of wonderful, broad, optimistic vision, in a way, sentimental vision, really, of America. And this is is the bummer from Banks vision of America, I think. It takes the life of these two characters and inserts them into a larger world, their lives and into a larger world. And um, and I think as a result, it makes it a better story.
0: Where do you write?
1: I, I work outside the house uh, whenever possible. I'm, I've never been able to work inside the house comfortably or easily. So I have a, uh, in in Miami, I have a little condo that I, um, just about a five-minute walk from where we live. And I'm up north, up in Keene. Um, I have a little renovated um studio, uh, it's a uh, sugar shack, you know, for boiling down uh, maple uh, sap into syrup, maple syrup, that's about a thousand yards from the house. And uh, I think the important part about both those places is that I don't do anything else in, in them except write. I don't pay bills. Um, I don't, um, you know, I don't socialize. I don't uh, don't eat my meals there. I just just work. And that really helps because when you walk through the door... You say, oh, yeah, right, if I'm here, I guess I better write because I don't really do anything else here. It's associational.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I guess the thing I do most regularly um, that actually takes me away from writing and, and uh, the life uh, for a period of time is, is mountain climbing. I've been doing that for hiking and mountain climbing since I was in my 20s. Um, I started in North Carolina uh, in the Smokies back in the 60s and I've been doing it ever since.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Well, my wife, uh Chase Twitchell is a poet, um and a really good reader um of fiction. She reads a lot of fiction and um and she's also more importantly a really good reader of me. I mean of me personally. Uh she knows when I'm evading or avoiding something which is difficult or painful or embarrassing to me. Um she knows when I'm faking it. Um, she knows that I'm being vain, showing off and, and I trust her and I listen to her. And so I show it to her first.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: Well, you know, I've had some negative reviews that's a form of rejection, um, in recent years, every now and then someone will come up and slap me upside the head and it's not as uh, bad as a stick in the eye or anything. You get over it pretty fast, um. Was it? I think Tennessee Williams said. He said, "Oh no, maybe it was Gore Vidal, but, that um, a um, a bad review can ruin your um, your breakfast, and um, but not much more." And and that's sort of true, um, unless you let it. And uh, and I try not to let it. But um, you know, actually, and I'm going to go on that subject a little bit further because the main thing you want is to try to learn something from a review. And the fact is that I've never learned anything from a negative review, and I've never learned anything from a positive review. That hasn't Anything that's affected my the next thing I was going to write, you know, uh, I'm not able to take the praise to teach me or the criticism, the negative criticism to teach me. And what is
0: your favorite word?
1: Oh, I saw that question. I, I saw it coming. I said, I don't have a favorite word. Do I have to choose one?
0: That was writer Russell Banks. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.